Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this special festival of learning three ideas. I'm the host of the show, Samuel Burke, managing editor here at Real Vision. And I'm super excited to have Russell Clark on with us. A lot of people in the Real Vision community are very excited to see you here, Russell. You're a former hedge fund manager and now content creator and investment manager. Before we jump into your three ideas, I just want to get your global macro outlook. We've had some updates uh, from the Fed and testimony at the House in the US. So just curious to see how you see it all. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Uh... Yeah, look, you know, um, you know, one of the reasons I sort of stepped away from managing money, at least for a while, is that the world started acting in a sort of different way to how uh, I'd become expecting it to happen, especially the way currencies and bonds uh, used to move. Um, and I think a lot of that's been driven by changes out of China. Uh, so, you know, we've got this, you know, largest, in some ways, the largest economy in the world now has a closed capital account. It has controlled lending. It does a lot of different things. And I think this influence, this influence of China on global macro is leaking into different changes elsewhere. Um, and it just took me a little while to get my head around that. Um, and now that I have, it's sort of, uh, and for people that sort of still follow me, you know, I, what I describe it is that we have been living since, let's say, 1980, maybe even 1970, depending on how you want to classify it. But we've been living in an era that's sort of pro-capital. So we've been giving more and more power to people who own capital, investors, businesses, and we've been sort of taking power away from labor, particularly organized labor, but labor in general. And it's a very capitalistic system where it looks to maximize profits and the idea that uh, corporates sort of know best. And if we give corporates freedom, we get the best possible results from that. Now, what I'm trying to say is I think that's a political, that was a political agreement. I think it's sort of falling apart in recent, uh, in like the last five to six years. We've been voting, and even in countries that don't vote, like China, the policies have been moving to, I'd say, a pro-labor environment. And what that means to me is that, you know, we are going back to sort of what we saw in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and we that will continue as long as people vote that way. So that sort of leads me to this sort of more, a much more inflationary environment. So when it costs you more to hire people to do stuff, prices go up. Uh, and it also leads to an environment where, how would I describe it? So if you look at like what we had from the 80s onwards, is that we would crush real wages to get inflation down. Um, and then to get growth going again, we'd expand credit because that was pro-capital. Now I think we're the other way around. We're exp Governments are pushing up wages 
and then they crush capital to try and keep inflation down. Uh, it's a it's a complete change to how the world has operated. And everywhere you look, you see signs of that. So you have a banking crisis in the States and your unemployment is very low, for example. You've had this sort of, you know, problems in the crypto space as well with FTX, other things. As liquidity is being pulled, unemployment remains low and inflation remains high. And I think that is really a template that's going to continue for the foreseeable future until voters decide they, t they tire of it and we start voting for politicians like Thatcher or Reagan again who I'd say at the moment would be unelectable uh, in the current type of environment. I think like austerity is electorally un unacceptable everywhere. And so I think that's why we're in a sort of new macro world. And I'm just curious, you've chosen the phrase pro-labor and obviously you haven't said populist. So can you just parse that for me? So, I mean, yeah, pro-labor is called populist because it tends to be more wage workers. But um, if you look at the way, you know, if you, take a sort of step back from that, you know, if you look at like some, I'm going to talk about Thatcher a bit more. I'm not I'm more familiar with her policies, but what you saw with Thatcher was like, for example, uh, selling council properties to their tenants. You took people that were, you know, uh, mainly wage earners or depending on the state and you turned them into property owners, right? So you, you had this sort of political environment where you're trying to convert as many people away from being dependent on the government and dependent on labor unions to being self-sufficient. That's a really good policy. But that sort of has run its electoral, come to its electoral end, because it's particularly when you look at people under the age of 40, particularly in London, it's almost impossible to buy property that, and so they've been, you've sort of seen the political support for that type of policy has collapsed purely because it's gone too far, just as the political support for uh, full employment and wage growth that existed after World War II collapsed in the 70s because people started seeing prices go up all the time. And so that is sort of, you know, where I'm going with that in that, yes, it's populist, but, you know, the old policies, pro-capital po policies were very popular for a long time as well because they benefited the most people. But those policies now benefit relatively few, while pro-labor policies or populist policies you want benefit far more people. And that's where the votes are. And you can see that in the transformation of like a Republican party in the US, uh, the stop go transformation of the conservative party here and just policies in general. We're, we're gonna get into your three ideas in a second, but before we do, uh, I just wanna get your, um, how it plays into your global macro thesis, uh, what we heard Jerome Powell, uh, what we heard that he said talking uh, in private to members of the U.S. House yesterday, asked how much further central banks would be willing to raise interest rates this year, and he pointed to the latest forecast showing that they'll do at least one more increase. Uh, we're going to get it deep into this in in your third trade, in your third idea uh, having to do with bonds. But just curious how the latest from the Fed is is shaping your outlook. So you know, uh, unlike a lot of people, I just think central banks are reactive to the environment that they're in. Um, so when we're running, so, you know, one of the things I think, you know, that I did very well back in the day was, you know, after the financial crisis, people got very bearish on bonds. They thought, uh, loose central bank policy was going to create inflation. Do you remember that? Like a hundred economists wrote to the Fed saying, what you're doing is bad, bad, bad. We're going to have inflation. And, you know, what, what I was trying to say is, look, you know, Japan is a good example here. If, if wages aren't rising and the government is running austerity policies, right, 
you are not going to get inflation. Right? If people don't have money, prices are not going to rise. That, and that is just a very simple observation. Um, and that was actually what came through. So owning bonds in that era, in the era of austerity, made a lot of sense. Now, when you look at the US, particularly the last few years, the government has spent a lot of money whenever there's been a problem, and they've spent it quite aggressively. Now, if, if that policy changes and we're heading back to austerity, yeah, I think, you know, the central banks will be cutting rates. Uh, you're going to see interest rates go back way down again, right? If that is what's going to happen. I very, very much doubt that personally. Austerity is electorally dead. No one wants it and we want changes. So I don't really, I personally, I don't particularly listen that much to what the central bankers say. I think they end up being, they end up following the macro trends. Um, and in a way, that's sort of, you know, what I think, Nepal is responding to is what the interest bond markets want. I'm not in this case. I, I'm not sure they'll get what they think. Um, and I'll be honest with you. People were very, very bearish on bonds back in 2014. Uh, you know, they were sure the long end was going to get crushed, and then they, it rallied massively. And I, what I see now is people think that's going to happen again, whereas I think the political environment has changed dramatically. It sounds like you're echoing a bit what a, an interview that Ash Bennington yesterday did yesterday on the Real Vision daily briefing is people kind of think that the Fed's going to go by the old playbook, like classic that Gus talked about, you know, generals fighting the last war. And it sounds like you think that isn't what's going to happen. So, you know, one of the things about inflation, right, is so I started out in emerging markets and you always used to get inflation, like particularly in markets like India, right? And, you know, people would say, you know, people would say various reasons why they thought but for me, it was always pretty obvious. What you always used to see, particularly in India uh, and some other markets as well, about, uh, about a year, six months before an election, the government would raise public servant salaries by 20%. Okay, that was, and then you get massive inflation coming through the system, obviously, right? Now, when was the last time we saw a 20% pay increase for the public servants in the UK or the US? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. My mom was a public servant. I don't, you know, I, I you, you it's, you'd have to really scratch your head to think when that last happened. But I'm looking at, you know, the environment we're in now, you know, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, at least somewhere in like the UK, I'd be surprised if you didn't get like five to six, maybe even 10% pay increases for NHS, which is the biggest employer in the UK. I would be surprised if you didn't see like 10 to 15%, maybe even larger increases for the next 10 years there uh, because you know, as you're probably aware, you know, like, uh, you know, these were the front, front, front line fires against COVID. We all clapped at 8 p.m. every day. But when it comes to, uh, can I have some money so I can actually afford to live in London and or to uh, afford uh, to, to pay for rising food prices, you know, you have very, very stingy increases. And that is, you can see in the polls, uh, is destroying uh, the conservatives, particularly in the big cities, but elsewhere as well. So I think the world has changed and I, I see that the purse springs are going to be loosened and money is going to go out to workers. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. 
Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. 510 declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Well, let's jump into the core of this show. It's called Three Ideas. So we get great minds like you to come in and talk about their three ideas. Full disclosure, most of the time people on the show are literally have a vested interest. They've either invested personally or their companies have shares in a lot of what they're talking about. And of course, time frame is everything. I'm going to be asking you about that over and over again. We just had our top performer, Larry Lepard, come back on. He's had 44% returns, and he just talked about the luck of timing over and over again in his victory lap, his very humble victory lap. So let's jump into your first trade, and that's Oxy, Occidental Petroleum Corporation. I just want to bring up the charts so we can look at how it's performed over the past five years. So as we look at this, we see that it cratered in 2020 around March got all the way down to about $10.23. Currently, it's off its recent highs in trading at about $62. This is an American company, hydrocarbon exploration and petrochemical manufacturing. So, Russell, tell us why this company and why now? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, I mean, I think yeah, for a lot of listeners, they should be familiar with Occidental. Uh, it became, you know, I started looking at when, you know, Warren Buffett disclosed a 20% stake in it. Um, and he, you know, that was before it collapsed. That was during COVID when pricing for oil and gas and, went negative. And, and, ju and just to jump in there, you're talking about a while ago, not the news this week, that TD Cowan had given it a, a major upgrade and Warren Buffett revealed that he's purchased about $200 million more worth of this in the past week, putting their control at 23.6%. So I don't want to confuse no. those things. Go ahead. Yeah, so I looked at, um, and the thing is, like, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned through looking at Buffett's stuff is sometimes they're playing a very, very long game that is not uh, particularly apparent uh, when you first start off. Uh, and so for me, so like I said, I started in emerging markets. So uh, Buffett and Munger bought BYD, uh, and at the time when they bought it, it was just a, a mobile phone battery maker, but they had a car division in there. But was very small and loss making and then of course in the last couple of years that car division has become the main part of that business stock got, went up 15 times when they purchased it but they were taking a very long view on where electric car industry was going so i went and looked at oxy with the same sort of okay what are they seeing here that gives them the, the comfort that this business could be much bigger because there are lots of oil and gas businesses out there lots of them right oxy has some nice features it's consolidating an industry in the shale area, but I wondered if there was anything else, a bit like with the BYD trade that was interesting. So I went for the presentations and looked at it. The, the business that really caught me, caught my eye as being very both unique and unusual and not really uh, correctly priced was its direct air capture business. Now, what that is at the moment is they take carbon dioxide and inject it into uh, wells to get more oil and gas out, okay? Uh, and the way the U.S. is running that is they give them a credit for that. So actually, you know, they get like uh, a carbon credit for doing that because they're sequestering carbon in that. The Greens don't really like that because you gain oil out and at the same time we're putting carbon back in. So it's not particularly, not something I particularly like. But when you read about this business a little bit more, uh, 
where they're going with it is that they are going to scale up massively. And what, they, what they're able to do is take carbon out of the air and put it back in the ground. And the way I think about um, uh, the sort of carbon uh, problem or carbon in the air problem is that, you know, we're in a closed system in the earth and over millions and millions of years, all this sort of carbon got stored underground because it's all dinosaurs or whatever, green stuff, uh, you know, uh, and then we've been using it and it's been released back, right? So what I was thinking is that, you know, in like a 10 to 15 year time horizon, uh, in 10 or 15 years, people like Greta Thunberg will be running Sweden rather than just like a teenage activist. I'll be an MP, prime minister or something like that. And I can see policy moving from one of getting to net zero, which is getting carbon down to zero emissions to actually removing carbon from the air. And when you look at how much carbon has been released, and how much would need to be put in the ground, you know, it's a huge amount, massive amount. And only Oxy is the one that could possibly do it at the moment. The real bottleneck there is underground storage of which the US dominates and Oxy has 75% market share of what has been done. Um, and so when you do some numbers on that, you know, if that was where the world went, their business could be absolutely massive uh, and far bigger than the oil and gas businesses now. So I really like that. Uh, I like that trade. I like the long-term nature of it. I guess it's slightly against your sort of uh, where does it go from here. That being said, if you look at what oil and gas prices have done, you know, they've come down dramatically, uh, particularly in Europe. Um, and so you've seen like this, you know, sideways movement in the oil and gas stocks. But when I look at sort of more long-term features, such as is oil production in the US rising, are we seeing a lot more capex going in? Uh, I'm not really seeing that. So for me, it feels like we had a spike from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and now it's sort of come back. So for me, it fits in, it ticks a lot of boxes. So I quite like it for that reason. So it sounds like your time horizon would be quite long. Just how long? Yeah, you know, as you get older, you get longer and longer time horizons, which should really be the reverse. You should have long time horizons when you're young and short when you're old, but anyway. Uh, yeah, I think, like I said, if when I did the numbers, uh, on how big this direct air capture business, what I really love about it, right? Is let's say in 15 years time, US is net zero, but India and Africa are emitting carbon into the air, right? The US could then say, you know what? We're gonna do you a favor. We are going to take some carbon out of the air for you. So you guys keep growing. But that business will go to Oxy and it will be based in Texas because you, when you take the carbon out of the air, you're benefiting the whole globe. Uh, and so there's this, really nice feature to it and that you can build a global business that helps the world. It's all based in Texas around Oxy's business. So I really like it. Yeah. So a very long time horizon, but that being said, um, when I look at the way I understand the world now, to me, it looks like we're, we had this sort of huge inflationary boom, uh, last year, we've had this sort of counter trend, you know, bond yields have fallen, commodity prices come down, people are getting relaxed again. Uh, and now it looks like a good time for another inflationary burst, I think. And what would make you upend your view on this idea? What would make you stop and say, all right, I got this wrong, time to retreat or rethink at the very least? So if China really changes policy, so uh, if China suddenly devalued, for example, so opened up its capital account, uh, allowed its uh, currency to trade freely, and particularly if it allowed the currency to devalue uh, against the dollar, 
that would really destroy uh, all of the trade ideas that we've got here. Um, so one of the big shifts is, you know, a free market capitalism requires free movement of capital and the free pricing of currencies. And moving to a still more pro-labor environment is uh, more capital controls and more fixed exchange rates. So if China changed policy, then I would change my view. But at the moment, there's no sign of that. All right. Well, if anybody has questions for Russell, a few have already come in. I'll ask them at the end uh, of this uh, of this part of the Festival of Learning. Though, if you have any questions relevant to any of his ideas here, individual ones, I'll take them while we're talking live. Uh, let's jump into your second idea, and that's Wilmar International that trades in Singapore. I uh, just want to take a step back and look at the chart for the past five years. This is the world's largest crude palm oil producer with ex extensive upstream assets in China and India. Peaked in February of 2020 at around $5.57 Singapore dollars, of course. Uh, October 2022 bottoms at around uh, 3.51 and now around 4.2. So talk to us about this company and why you'd be interested to get in now. Yeah, so I've been following this stock ever since it first listed. It, it listed via sort of backdoor uh, listing in Singapore back, I think, in 2005, 2006. It was phenomenal stock at the time. Uh, it sort of peaked out around 2010, 11, and has done nothing since. Um, now, what it does have, it has dominant, uh, it's like a dominant plantation coupon mold producer in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia. Now, those markets are starting to constrain. There's not enough land to build on and environmental concerns are sort of reducing supply there. So they've been starting to expand into to West Africa, which I quite like. I like the, I, the story of West Africa. I like the demographics, I like the politics there. Um, but you with Wilmar, so you get like an asset, a really nice sort of inflation asset driven by, for me, food inflation and wage inflation are almost synonymous. So when you have wages going up, you'll see food prices go up. If wages don't go up, food prices stay flat they sort of move together for me so i quite like having a sort of food related asset um now the other thing that makes wilma interesting two other things that make it very interesting is it has a the dominant sort of cooking oil brand in china which is listed uh which is called yihai awana and that they own 90 percent of that business and uh the value of that 90 percent stake is greater than their market cap in singapore so you've really got like a sort of stub play there or negative EV value on a mark to market. They also have a Indian uh, JV with Adani, uh, which has sort of been not great this year, but uh, market wise. To say the but again, you know, it's a, it's a great business. Um, and they, they do other things like sugar, a whole bunch of different businesses, but they constantly expanding and investing. So you buy in a book, 4% yield, uh, Archer Daniel Midlands owns 25% of it, the Kwok family, owns another big chunk of it. So it's sort of, you know, it has a relative, it's not a super huge float, but it's big enough to get in and out of for most people. And so I like a lot of the sort of optionality on this. Again, there is, a, unfortunately, as I get older, I sort of take a longer time horizon on things. You know, the Africa side of it, which I quite like, West African side of it anyway, uh, probably will take a few, a while to play out. But as a sort of inflation, food inflation uh, trade, I quite like it. Um, and looks, looks attractive for me. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
Yeah, you say it trades as a, a commodity stock, but it's got that consumer business exposure that you're talking about in China. I, I'm curious, what's your, your time horizon then? You're saying long. Can you actually give me some numbers, some decades, it sounds like? Uh, well, you know, it, this could be one you just own forever. Uh, but, you know, I've, you know, like I said, one of the things I, I think about is that, and which fits in, and it's a slightly more difficult uh, analysis, but um, now we sort of have this conflict between China and the USA. What that's done is it's given power to smaller countries because before everyone was sort of aligned with the US, so there wasn't, you know, and the US ran the system and so it was like you had to play by those rules. Now you've gained more conflict between China and the US. There's more power sort of flowing down to smaller nations and countries are taking more, more notice of them. And so I, I like that angle and Africa and particularly West Africa is the one region where, for example, China could really grow a, a big uh, export business without having the sort of political constraints that the Western world has placed on it. Um, and so I could see money being poured into that part of the world, not just by the Chinese, but by the Japanese, by the Americans and by the Europeans all looking for influence. So I feel like growth is going to be much stronger in these sort of unaligned or potentially unaligned areas. And so I like having that sort of angle into it. So it sounds like it's a forever stock, but what would make you uh, upend your forever view of it? Oh, well, like I say, it's very, it, at the moment, it's very heavily reliant on China again. So, you know, for me, everything revolves around Chinese policy. So the Chinese were the first ones to go pro-labor. And that is the, what that is for me really driving a pro-labor change globally. Um, and I think it's, it's ongoing. So if Chinese change policy, then that stock could be problematic, but at the moment, there's no signs of that. All right, just want to remind everyone, if you have any questions, if you're watching this live, feel free to jump in on these trades. But let's jump into your third trade, which is actually a trade that David Ro Rosenberg had also here on Three Ideas in January. Uh, that's uh, iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. Uh, people are probably quite familiar with this. And we talked a little bit at the top of the show about those remarks from Jay Powell. Uh, does that influence? I, I can't imagine it doesn't influence your thinking uh, on this ETF. Yeah, look, you know, uh, I've been, I made, you know, I made a lot of bonds in the sort of deflate, what I would call uh, the deflationary era from sort of 2010 to 2020, 2021. You know, made 20. I made a lot of money on those. Uh, and, but for me, I look at the bond environment and I think I understand the logic of people buying TLT. So what you're seeing is you're seeing this rapid rise in interest rates. You're seeing the yield curve invert. And if you look historically, at least back to 1980, whenever the yield curve's inverted, the Fed stopped raising rates and then the long bond has rallied because it's been a, a bond bull market, right? The problem is, is if you extend your analysis back to the sixties and seventies, and look at what happened with yield curves. Yield curves got very much more heavily inverted, up to six to seven percent, super inverted. Um, and so, what I'm trying to say is, you have a very you know, just because it inverts in that era didn't mean that the Fed stopped raising rates. What they did do is they kept raising rates, and the whole curve was pulled up in this inverted sort of way. And you lost absolute fortunes on the long end. Now that so that is the first thing of why I think we're in that bad environment. 
The second one is, I think, uh, I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of commenters uh, have gotten very lazy with their analysis. So the thing about TLT is it's not a bond, okay? It's not like, if you came out to me and said, Russell, I'm going to buy a 50-year Austrian bond that's trading at 40 cents, you know, at 40% of par, okay, so 40 cents, whatever. I go, that's absolutely fine. There is no way you can lose money on that. If you hold that to maturity, you'll get your 100 and you'll get your coupons. TLT does not have that feature. So if you buy TLT today, what it does is it buys 30-year bonds and it sells them when they become a 20-year bond, okay? Mm. In that 10-year horizon, there is no pull to par, okay? There is no, so if it's, let's say it's 80 cents now, you're buying your 30-year at 80 cents. By in 10 years' time when it's a 20-year, it could be 50 cents, right? If interest rates have gone up a lot more. Right. And then the bond, the ETF will automatically sell it. So it locks in that capital loss and then goes back and buys another 30 year with it. Do you get what I'm saying there? So it's a naturally, even though it's replicating owning a long dead bond, it's only doing it on the capital side and it has no pull to par. So it's a product that has a naturally is inferior to actually owning a government bond directly. Now, the other thing about it is that if you look at it, it quotes a yield of three, three and a half percent, you know, 3.8%, which is in line with what the 30 year is offering at the moment. But if you understand that there's no pull to par, the actual number that only really matters is what the coupon is, okay? So the coupon will tell you where the capital value is going. So if the coupon is less than current market yield, which it is, the coupon's two and a half, market yield's like three, seven, it trades at 80 cents on the dollar, okay? But at two and a half coupon, well, I, you know, if let's say market rates on the long end goes to five or six, you're looking at losing another 30 to 40% of capital. And there's a potential that you don't get that back, like I said, because there's no pull to par. Um, and so what I think is, for me, uh, what I like about TLT, I see two things happening, possibly happening. One is that the Fed realizes that fiscal policy and other policies are going to keep pushing up wages. So they need to raise interest rates even more. So the whole curve moves up, but stays inverted. I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. uh, that would all depend on the Fed. The other thing I could see happening is, as you probably highlighting, is the Fed thinks about cutting rates because the market's telling them to cut rates. I think what happens then, if they cut rates, is that inflation pressures start to come back into the system very aggressively. And so you get a massive sell-off at the back end, right? Because people start to realize inflation is coming back. You know, it, to me, it's ridiculous to start talking about rate cuts when you still have uh, you know, employment data as strong as it is in the States. You, know, you really, you really sort of, I think, looking too far down or looking too much at history. And so for me, it just looks like you make money on that trade either way. And of all yeah, the three Just trades, to be clear, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard you correctly, but whether the Fed raises or cuts rates, you see, you see TLT performing well. Uh, going well, performing badly. As I see it, yeah, as short. yeah, yes, yes. In fact, though, that's how I see it at the moment. Yeah. So, so what is your time horizon then for this? I think it looks uh, great at the moment. Of all the trades, it's probably the most timely. Um, what I also love about it, uh, uh, if you go to people with Bloomberg, uh, and I'm sure there's another way to get it. That's how I get it. If you do type in TLTSO, 
that gives you the shares outstanding on TLT. And they have tripled in the last year, right? Now I can tell you back in 2014, when you should have been buying them and no one wanted them, people were not buying them. Retail investors, the share count was low, actually short interest in it was very high. I think the net positioning in TLT back then was negative. So we were very, very bearish on bonds. Now everyone and their dog has gone and bought TLT. Like literally have gone super long. And normally in that type of horizon, like I said, when I, for me, when I look at it, it looks like a, a short, no matter what the Fed does, which I love to see. Um, and, and then I look at positioning, people are super bullish on it. Uh, it's sort of gone sideways for a while. That's fine by me. Uh, you, you, I think just from a technical perspective, this will be more for your institutional clients if they watch this is that because the yield curve is so heavily inverted to the Fed fund rate, if you sell TLT, you can take the proceeds and stick them in the money market and you actually make a carry on that. It's very rare. So that's what makes it as an attractive trade. So when you calculate this, can you please add the carry into that trade as well, please? Oh, we do have a tracker on the show. So maybe we'll have to figure out some uh, some way of tracking that. So we, we track everybody's trades. You can go to bit.ly slash rv3ideas and, and see them. So that might be one way we'll have to track it. And what would what would cause you to say, all right, maybe I got this one all wrong. I can think of a number of factors, but what do you think is the most likely one where, where you would say time to rethink this? Well, you know, it's uh, like, uh, you know, for me, like, uh, again, if we saw a change in China and the way they were dealing with policy um, away from, you know, uh, this sort of what I call pro-labor policy, that would be incredibly deflationary. So if China blew up, right, and demand in China, consumer demand fell, we'd be in a world of pain, depression, you know, very, very bad economic environment. And we have yet to see that. If it was going to happen, I've I would have said it would have happened in 2015, 2016. So to me, it, moved, it feels like we've really moved into a different environment uh, uh, and that continues to go that way. Um, outside of that, it's, you know, it's tricky because if you look at like, I think the reason why people are so bullish on bonds, they look at like a bank, bank failures in the States and go, oh, that's deflationary, so I gotta buy bonds. Uh, and looking at GFC, but the bank failures that have happened this time have all been because the banks have been too lazy to pay pay up for deposits. Uh, I certainly know I've taken deposits out of the bank because they don't pay enough. Uh, I can put it in the money market or in the Fed and get you know, nearly 5%. So why would I leave in the bank that's paying me zero? Uh, and so the banks that have gone bust, I think have deserved to go bust in a way because they've been unable to fulfill their basic uh, job of paying you interest on a deposit. All right, so short shorting TLT is your third idea. And now I just want to jump into some of the questions that we've had coming in. Uh, first one we have from Alex Fuoma. What was it like when you first started on this journey? Talked a lot about emerging markets, so, so give, us, give us some color. Oh, first, uh, well, uh, which journey in <laughs> which journey you're talking about there? But um, I first started as an emerging market analyst back in 2002, which at the time was the biggest dead end job in the financial markets. Uh, 2002, you had come through the Asian financial crisis, the Russian crisis, 
the Argentinian Deval dot-com bubble, which her career, which began emerging markets. And then 2002, you had a big Brazilian devaluation. So you just, it was a world of pain and very, very poorly paid. Uh, but fortunately enough, I'd been working in China in 98 and knew it was the next big thing. So I was def des desperately trying to uh, get as long China as I could and emerging markets was the way, the way to do it. And that's been, you know, uh, it's been a very fun, uh, ups and downs, but a very fun uh, journey for me. I hope that's the question he was asking about that one or not the uh, becoming a content creator, which is much more recent. I both of them being interesting. Well, let's contrast that as well. Oh, well, the, the content in creation anybody, one... In case folks don't know, you, you have a, you're pretty prolific on Twitter, but your sub stack is quite colorful and it's always a nice one to follow, especially when I'm doing research for, for this interview, but good to follow even if you're, you're not talking with Russell directly. Yeah, well, you know, the, the sub stack just came from, uh, I used to write a, you know, a monthly newsletter and publish some free research. And it always end up on zero hedge of all places. And I, I try not to go on the zero hedge. I particularly try not to read the comments on zero hedge. That always gives me like a headache. Uh, Might make you feel like a zero. <laughs> but I did notice it was sometimes getting like 50, 60,000 views. And I was thinking, well, you know, that's great for zero hedge. It's sort of great for me. It's like free marketing. Um, but it always made me think, you know, actually, maybe I should be getting some of that money uh, if people are that interested in what I have to say. Uh, and then, you know, after, you know, in the way I thought about the world, COVID should have destroyed financial markets and should have been super deflationary and it wasn't. And uh, so I needed to rethink about how I thought the world worked. And uh, so I wanted to take a step back and then Substack seemed like a, a good way for me to A, organize my thoughts and keep in touch with people. Um, and if I ever find a big opportunity uh, to launch another fund again, then I'll be set to do that. So it's been good. It's been very interesting. And has it been profitable for you? Uh, yeah, it's not as profitable as running a hedge fund. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. A little uh, less stress? Yes, less stress. And I'm, I'm very lucky in that. Uh, my two sons are, uh, are great athletes. My oldest one, uh, my oldest one is a go-karter. So this gives me the time to take him to Europe where he's competing now and spends a lot of time with him. My youngest is doing football. So I take him all around London. So I, uh, the Substack fits in really well with that, with what I'm doing in my life at the moment. Uh, yeah, so it works really well, uh, and I enjoy it. All right, so Substack for uh, spending time with your kids in mainland Europe and playing uh, football, soccer. I want to jump into the next one that's uh, from Swifty Swole. Should we really be worried about this digital dollar? Mm, interesting, the digital dollar. I mean... Uh, I, when, it's a bit of a tricky question. What do you mean by worried exactly? What, uh, uh, in like, someone's going to like take all your money away or is it going to destroy Bitcoin or is it going to change the nature of what? Uh, so that question is a bit tricky to answer. I'm not quite well, sure what they're asking about. No, I, I, knowing this audience, I wouldn't be surprised that plenty of folks are wondering about how it would affect Bitcoin. So we could go that venture. But I know because there's been talk about the digital pound here in the UK as well, where you and I are sitting, as well as the a digital euro. And um, you know, I think there is a lot of concern, maybe not with the typical real vision viewer, but I think with a lot of folks about what that means for their money. I think it probably sounds a lot more 
well, a lot scarier to folks than than folks in the RV audience. Yeah, I must say I have a very different view on it. In that, um, I think the political priorities of uh, of politicians has moved to raising real wages, which is why we have inflation. But the the thing that the sort of subtle part of that is that by focusing on getting wages up, central banks are almost forced to destroy speculation in the system. So they try and they don't let the currencies devalue. Their interest rates rise. And so you have this environment, and you've definitely seen it this year and last year as well, this environment of strong growth because people have more money to spend. And the flip side of asset prices being not great, right? And it, for most people, that's very difficult to accept because we're used to this idea of good economy, good asset prices, uh, and asset prices trying to drive growth. Because the political priorities have changed, what I think you're seeing is, um, you know, anything that's speculative, anything that has any sort of speculative flows is struggling. And you're starting to see that with banks, you see it in the crypto space, definitely in sort of FTX exchanges, some of the more altcoins. Uh, and, you know, and so it's this weird thing in that the, the, it actually almost pays to own cash now. I certainly have more money parked in money market funds than I've had for, for decades, if that makes sense. And so I think, you know, in the digital space, a digital coin, if it, if it's earning a five, 6% yield and it's government backed is going to be an asset that most people are going to be attracted to. And we're going to see more money, more, more money shift that way as the government sucks, uh, speculative flows back into, uh, high yielding products. So yeah, digital coins could be a problem, but I think it's government policy. That's the real issue. Hmm. Here's a question from Nanamo Trader. What concept idea do you feel most retail investors are missing right now? Hmm. Uh, always a tricky one. Uh, I think, like I said, I mean, it's almost going to be a rehash of the last answer a little bit, but like, you know, I think people forget that it's been because interest rates have been so low for so long and there's an expectation for them to go back again. People are sort of saying, oh, look, speculative assets have come down. Now we can get in. Or I'm saying, I think we've got this environment where governments will keep trying to pull uh, speculative capital back out. And so we're going to have, you know, I think safety, even though it looks really tricky, safe assets uh, like, you know, money market funds and that sort of things will be an attractive place to be, I think. For, for long term, ten to fifteen years, probably. Yeah. Okay. When the Fed stops raising rates, asked Danielle seven one zero, would entering TLT call options make sense? If you had to trade it, how would you? So my view uh, is that if the Fed stops raising rates, and so the market goes, okay, the Fed stop raising rates, you know what you're probably going to see, particularly unless we see a huge spike in unemployment suddenly, which I'm not seeing, but which is why I'm surprised people are so sure that the Fed's going to stop raising rates. Uh, without a big spike in unemployment caused by something, I think the Fed just keeps raising rates. And what you're going to see is you want to be buying puts on TLT, not calls, because uh, TLT will be going down. So this is the way I look at it, right? Um, if you take Fed fund rate and you look at the 30-year bond yield, you know, 
on average, the steepness of that curve is like 2%. Okay, so you got a 2% premium for lending to the US government for the year. That's typical, right? Now, at the moment, it's sort of, uh, it's like negative uh, 1% or something like that, roughly about 1%. So let's say the Fed cuts 5% from where we are today. And the market goes, wow, that's inflationary. We want to put sort of peak where there's like 4%. So you actually get like a huge sell-off at the end if the Fed cuts rates and growth starts to accelerate. So for me, the buying the TLT just offers this very, almost no upside uh, and massive downside any way I cut it. So hmm. to me, it just looks like a bad trade. Shorting TLT all along the way. A question from George. We just have a couple minutes left here, but George asks, I would like to ask you for your insights on the issues of monopolization by companies in India. What steps do you think should be taken to tackle this problem? And how do you foresee this trend affecting the country's economy and consumers in the long run? Meaty question, but you have all that experience in emerging markets. So let's go for well, it. India is, India is probably the most difficult market uh, for investing in my experience. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, monopolization or like a very concentrated market is really a big issue there. Um, so, you know, uh, investors in India often get burnt. A big thing that people try to do is uh, team up with insiders like Ambani or Adani, uh, who are both incredibly wealthy uh, individuals in, in India. The problem is, is like, uh, for example, with Ambani you could put the money with the brother who lost the battle and most of the stocks that he was involved with fell 80, 90%. And so when it, because it's so politically driven, it makes it very hard for investing. And historically, foreign investors have also lost heavily on the currency uh, and the Indian rupee, I don't know, it looks like it could be ready to go again. Uh, so generally, if you don't have to be invested in India, I would avoid it. Um, you know, you can buy other companies in the US that will go be going into India anyway, and they'll get that exposure. Um, but yeah, I found India a very, very difficult market, uh, to invest in. Uh, there's a lot of things that go on behind, uh, closed doors and it's tricky. If you have to buy India, Hindustan Unilever is a pretty good company. It's got great track records, it's quite expensive, but that, that would be the way I would look at it. Yeah. Even everything that we saw happen with Adani, the way that the, the folks betting against it carried out the short was rather complicated because of the the rules stopped, uh, against shorting in India. So it is a it is a, a landmine. But we've had Maggie Lake just did a really fascinating interview for our how to unf your future series. So I would encourage him to take it out. He talks about the complexities. So Russell Clark, just to recap your three ideas, Oxy traded on the NICE, Wilmar International traded in Singapore, and shorting iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF, TLT US. Russell Clark, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be following you on your Substack. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. You're just around the corner from me here in London. So let's go grab a drink at that pub sometime. Absolutely. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.